Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you joining our broadcast for the very first time, daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time, and that's where you come in. We are here to answer your questions on the Word of God. Maybe you've got a question about a particular Bible verse you want to explore, how to apply the Bible to the current challenges you might be facing. Uh, Perhaps uh, you've been asked a tough question about your faith in Christ, or uh, maybe uh, you've uh, always had a tough question percolating in the back of your mind, uh, and you've never found a no-harm, no-foul, non-judgmental place to get those questions answered. Uh, That's what we'd like to provide for you here today. Uh, The only standard for our questions, pretty simple. Just make sure that it's a sincere question. And if you're looking for an answer straight from the scriptures, we'll be happy to uh, supply it. So uh, get online and uh, get those questions coming to us. We're already getting some great questions showing up on our different uh, uh, question feeds. Sean, if people want to get their questions to us, how can they do that? Well, you can join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab, and you'll be sent to the video feed where we are live streaming from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S. every single weekday. And that's also Pacific Time, by the way. You're on the West Coast, same time. Yeah, I'll I'll note the exception because we in here in the... uh, Wild West don't adhere to them uh, fancy city folk in their daylight savings time. That's so, right. We, uh, Another great reason to move to Arizona. but <laughs> Unless you're... I'll leave that alone. Anyway, when we're talking about uh, answering your questions on the right side of the screen, you can leave them in the form of a comment, and we will be able to answer them as we are monitoring those things live. And as well, if you're joining us screen to screen, you can also see our email address spelled out for you at the bottom of the screen as well, questionsforhope at gmail.com for those listening on radio. As well, if you want to join us on social media, we have a YouTube page, which is A Reason for Hope, and our Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you want to give us a like or subscribe to us there, you will be notified when we are going live on those respective platforms. However, since we can't control when or why we will be taken down, we want to make sure that unless there's a technical difficulty and we give you prior notifications first, if you don't see us streaming on those platforms, our website will still be open, and of course, our radio affiliates will keep us on the air so long as they'll have us. Yeah. <laughs> We're looking forward to, of course, answering your questions, but that is how you can get a hold of us. Questionsforhope at gmail.com. Um, and as well, let me uh, get in the habit of mentioning this our Twitter page, Scott R4H at twitter.com. That's Scott, letter R, the number four, the letter H. I'll, yep. I'll slowly get back into that groove. You can also send us questions through that as well by personal messaging us through that. But noting that point, if you want to take advantage of any or all, as long as they are sincere Bible questions, 
Those are the three rules. Yeah. They are sincere, they're about the Bible, and they are questions. We'll be happy to address them, even if it's coming from someone who perhaps either doesn't share our perspective or doesn't even share our worldview. We're happy to address them as long as they are sincere, and we are setting ourselves aside to address questions about the Bible. But since uh, we didn't write it, why don't we address the author, make sure he speaks more than we do? Yeah, that would be awesome. Lord, thank you that we have this opportunity to not only uh, spend time uh, looking into your Word, but Lord, spending time in your presence, I thank you that you've exalted your word even above your name, your scripture says, and you are far more concerned about us understanding and applying your truth than we are in even discovering it. In a world where there is so much confusion, we pray, Father, for the clarity that comes as your Holy Spirit does what you've promised he would do, guide us into all truth. We pray that your name, Father, would be glorified, that people would understand the, the ministry of Jesus more deeply, and uh, Lord, to have that heart-to-heart relationship with you that is based not just on sincerity, but also on truth. We ask you to do these miracles for us now and commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. Now, uh, could have been happier news. If you're listening to us tape delay on the radio station, it will have been the day before. But at the time of this recording, that, of course, being on April 27th, 2022, it is Holocaust Remembrance Day. Yeah, uh, Yad HaShoah, Yam HaShoah, I should say, uh, is uh, the uh, Hebrew name for this day. And it is a day where uh, people in Israel and all over the world take a step back and uh, remember exactly uh, what happened during World War II, the Holocaust that took place there, over 6 million Jews exterminated in uh, Jewish concentration camps. Uh, the first uh, official commemoration uh, of uh, Yad HaShoah uh, took place in 1951. Uh, it was uh, made an official day of remembrance in Israel uh, in 1959. And uh, each and every day it's held on the 27th day of the month Nisan on the Jewish calendar. Uh, unless, of course, the 27th would be adjacent to the Jewish Sabbath, in which case they move it about. Uh, one of the most important reasons, I think, to take time out of this broadcast to remember that it is uh, Yom HaShoah today is twofold. Uh, first of all, we see study after study showing that anti-Semitism is uh, rising by leaps and bounds in this world, and that's not just where we might expect to find it in uh, countries that are dominated, say, by uh, anti-Semitic uh, religions like Islam, but uh, also in secular societies. In Europe, uh, anti-Semitism is doing land office business, and uh, even here in the United States, we even have uh, people in positions of political leadership making uh, anti-Semitic statements, questioning whether, in fact, the Holocaust uh, actually took place or not. Uh, uh, from what I understand, uh, reading up on this a little bit earlier uh, on uh, the All Israel News website that our good friend Joel Rosenberg has put together, 165,000 uh, Holocaust survivors uh, still living in Israel today. And uh, if you go to Israel, one of uh, the highlights, in my opinion, of visiting Israel is the trip to the Holocaust Museum. It will absolutely change your life spend time there. And uh, really, even on a, a tour of Israel, the way the time is usually parceled out, uh, you aren't given enough time to uh, do the site justice. But for uh, me, a couple real highlights of uh, visiting uh, uh, the uh, 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 Yad Vashem, as they call it, the uh, Holocaust uh, Museum there. 
uh, was first of all the memorial to the approximately 1.5 million uh, Jewish children who died in the death camps in World War II. And they do this in a pretty remarkable way. You walk into this uh, place and it looks like you're walking into a cave. And as you go in there, uh, the door closes behind you and it's completely dark. And then you will see just one little light appear on the wall before you. And uh, because it's completely dark, your eye just focuses in on that one little dot of light. Then another adds to it, another adds to it. And the way they've designed it is to reflect the light of each of these 1.5 million children who died there. And it is just an incredibly emotional experience. The other thing that really hit me was something that, well, maybe doesn't hit a lot of people, but it certainly made a lasting impression on me. When you leave uh, Yad Vashem, yeah, you'll notice there is uh, kind of a gateway uh, that, uh, that you uh, can walk out under as you head back to the parking lot. And written on the top of this gateway are these words, I will put my breath into you and you shall live again and I will set you upon your own soil. It's a quote from Ezekiel chapter 37 and verse 14. And, and I have to say that when I read that and I saw that there, I just absolutely got chills because it tells me a couple of things. First of all, uh, we need to remember what happened in the past or we are condemned to repeat it, as many philosophers have said. But we also need to remember something. God still has a plan for the Jewish people. And I, I really love uh, what the Apostle Paul said about this in the book of Romans, chapter 11. And sometimes we as believers in Christ uh, who are made up of this largely Gentile, but still uh, a mixture of Jew and Gentile uh, that we call the church, sometimes we think that God is done with the Jewish people. But uh, in the book of Romans, chapter 11, and verse 25, uh, we read this, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. The blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Uh, I love that because it tells me a couple of things. First of all, we as Gentiles, and Sean and I, we can testify to this, we are Heinz 57 variety Gentiles, uh, lovable mutts, I think, as uh, Americans were referred to uh, in uh, one movie that we saw. But uh, the other thing that we discover is this, God allowing us to be part of his forever family, reaching out to Gentiles like us, is definitely uh, a kind of a plan B, if you will. Uh, God's main dealings with this world happened through the Jewish people. It was through the Jewish people, uh, again, that uh, we got the scriptures. It was through the Jewish people uh, that we uh, got an understanding of who the God of Israel is. It is through the Jewish people that we have our Jewish Messiah, and that is Jesus himself, who is not only uh, the Messiah of the Jews, but of the whole world, the one who is our Savior. So, uh, you know, when we take a look at the Jewish people and why we as believers in Christ should be pro-Israel and should be praying for the peace of Jerusalem and should seek opportunities to be able to demonstrate the love of God to our Jewish friends, uh, I think all of those reasons uh, come together. Uh, Skip Heitzig, our good friend, was asked once uh, why he supported Israel. He spoke about this at uh, the Calvary Chapel Pastors Conference we recently had 
here in Tucson, and I loved his answer. He said, I love Israel because I love the Jewish scriptures, I love the Jewish God, and I love the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. So uh, on this uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day, we need to remember that uh, Satan definitely is playing for keeps. He definitely hates the Jewish people. In fact, tonight at Calvary Christian Fellowship, uh, we're going to be uh, teaching through a section of scripture that can explain for us uh, in no uncertain terms why uh, the Jewish people seemingly have been set aside for such persecution, right? Well, not just set aside, unfortunately, been the target for it. Yeah. But the point of emphasis is, and we'll probably get more into that next week, when we're talking about the Jewish people, we don't see them as a superior race or those who are above reproach, but we not only love them like we would even people who wouldn't share our faith, not only because they're made in the image and likeness of God, but because, as we noted, three very special reasons. The first is given in Deuteronomy chapter 7, because the Lord loves them and we want to share his heart. The second is because we love their Lord, <laughs> yeah. the God of Israel in particular. Is the God who not only revealed himself in a moment of history, but cared even about us non-Jewish people, kind of broke the rules for how gods were understood in the ancient world. Right. And the third and most important reason is because, like anyone else on this planet, if they're the target of the enemy, we should be trying to help. And if there is an opportunity for us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, it's directly tied into all of our redemption. So there are selfish reasons we benefit from it, as well yeah, as all true. creation. Yeah. There are spiritual reasons. It's solidarity with God and aligning ourselves with his heart and its association. It is, of course, the fact of history that God revealed himself uniquely through Israel, and that's why we want their favor more than anyone else. Yeah. So, or at least uh, alongside and above everyone else. Um, we, going out to our questions? Yeah, let's do it. We uh, got an email that I guess it's been too long, but um, the individual doesn't give us their name, doesn't really have to. They want to know, could man really lied about the shape of if the earth uh he believes the answer is yes the bible describes the earth and its shape what are your feelings thank you um to the individual who left the comment the bible doesn't say anything of the sort we'll go through those passages in a moment but when it comes to the flat earth theory and all of the sticky shenanigans that we get involved with when it comes to that we've given them enough credit like we would those who would hold different views about the end times, different views about maybe even biblical history. The same is true for the biblical present. If someone claims to be a flat earther, it's not a symptom of them not being saved, but it is a symptom of a very inconsistent reaction to something that we all can honestly relate to. Now note what we relate to and how we react are two different things. This is what we'll address in a moment. Yeah. But when it comes to what we have in common, this is always the best way to start a conversation. What can we say that is going for the flat earther? The reason why this has been, I not really even gained popularity. There's always been odd cultures that have made various claims about the earth. But when it comes to the age of the internet and all of this information being accessible to us, there are two great curses when it comes to information, too little and too much. And yeah. when people are exposed to too much, they can become jaded, they can become cynical, and especially when that information is so overwhelmingly from people that you have fewer and fewer reasons to trust. Right. Now, we all can agree, we don't like it when we're being lied to. And when a certain group or a certain individual or even a certain field of study 
continuously puts themselves forward again and again and again as this source and authority on all truth and then violates that trust, and especially in ways that harm us and others around us personally. We can give examples in modern day, but the YouTube overlords will take us down. The point being made is this. When the flat earth mentality is formed, it's not because someone just woke up one morning and said, I'm going to adopt an archaic view of cosmology. No, it's because... That's rarely happened to me. No, yeah. uh, I can't say for myself either. Yeah. But when it comes to those who hold these views, you'll find they're very passionate about this. Why? Because it's an emotional reaction to deception targeted right. at those right. who regularly give information that we've been taking for granted. Now, you know that we encourage on this broadcast to check out what we tell you. We don't hold ourselves up as the end-all, be-all of all Bible study, right. which is why we back up what we say with explanations and citations from Scripture. Sometimes we don't go into it as much as we'd like, but the time is still limited, so hopefully you can give us grace in that regard and ask for clarification in future questions. The point, though, is when someone adopts a flatter theory, it's not a conclusion based on data. It's a view on the sources of that data and saying whatever they have told me because they violated my trust one too many times, I'm going to proactively not just pursue, but promote the opposite. If the NASA scientists are going to claim the Earth is spherical, I will claim the Earth is flat, not because I've seen data that concludes this. I've concluded that they're wrong. Therefore, anyone who says what they don't say is right. Now, that's a logical fallacy, but we're not getting into cosmology. The question is limited to the Bible. Yeah. So before we get into the scriptures they would use to say, well, the Bible says the earth is flat, maybe in a positive sense from flat earth society, or in a negative sense as an objection to it from atheists and skeptics. Anything more we want to add before we get into those verses? Well, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. So much of it is a reaction to feeling like uh, we've been lied to. And I think a lot of that fuels things like, uh, oh, did you know the moon landing was faked? And, uh, and so on. Uh, talk to people like uh, astronaut Buzz Aldrin about that. And he gets quite adamant about the fact that it wasn't faked because he was, in fact, there. Uh, you know, if, he was paid off. If, <laughs> if you have this conspiracy that this whole thing was fake. No one that was a part of the moon landings has ever indicated uh, such a thing. Uh, and uh, you would think of with the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that were uh, absolutely essential to pull off a moon landing, for instance, one of them would have uh, turned tail and said, oh, it's, it's all a big fake. Uh, none of them ever did. And uh, the, the fact of the matter is uh, we can uh, take pictures of uh, the uh, the remnants of uh, the Apollo missions that were there on the moon and so forth. So, you know, when, when someone takes that point of view, you can pretty much tell they've been burned. So I think it was good, good that you brought that up. Yeah, so make sure that there's at least some modicum, I think would be the proper word, of grace towards those who hold this position. They're not stupid. They're thinking with their heart. And, 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 and if you've taken a position on any subject because you've been burned, um, you know, I know some people are anti-Semitic because they had a bad relationship with someone who was Jewish. Or Jews that have had bad association with Christians and therefore exactly. conclude he's not the Messiah. Exactly. It's not rational. Yeah, you've got to take a look at the data. Don't read into the data. Read out of it. 
Right. Yeah. So when it comes to the Bible's claim that the earth is flat, there's a few passages that we can go to uh, in light of what we'll be talking about tonight in the book of Revelation chapter 7. Uh, in verse 1, it mentions the four corners of the earth. The angels were holding back the four winds right. that would blow on the four corners of the earth. This is also repeated in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 8. It also is mentioned in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 12. He will raise a signal for the nations. This is... Uh, English Standard Version. He will assemble the banished of Israel, gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Uh, and then, of course, other examples of this. Now, first of all, we need to clarify, if you make the assumption before reading the text that whatever you say that's in line with NASA or whoever you don't like is a lie, that's not an objective way of looking at the passage. Right. Is there another option that is more rational, more informed to conclude? The Bible is describing the shape of the earth. Since it has four corners, that means that it's a square. Well, I can, uh, yeah, I, I can uh, make that claim all I want, but here's the problem. If I look at the Marines uh, ad in the, I believe, 1970s, where they saved for the four corners of the earth, we are there. Well, I would make, uh, I guess, with Peter Martin present, he would be able to approve any of the uh, humorous notes about the Marine Corps stereotype, but I think the ones who would be uh, under the, I guess, payroll of NASA wouldn't include the United States Marine Corps. They're not in opposition to this. They're using what's called in English an idiom. Yeah. And this exists in other languages as well. Yeah. If they are describing four corners, how else could that be used? Could it be describing a shape? Yeah, I've done it in math plenty of times. It could also be describing what? North, south, east, west. Yeah, four points of the compass. So if I apply that in that way, does it make sense given the passage? Well, every direction God will gather together his people. In from every direction, these angels are about to pour on judgment on the earth. From every direction, people will come and gather to this, uh, well, uh, to, I guess, invade the uh, Jerusalem that Jesus will rule from at the end of the thousand-year reign. Right. That makes as much sense as the person who would infer on the passage, this is describing the shape of the earth. But you'd have to make another assumption that that's the purpose of the passage when in Isaiah and both times in Revelation, descriptions weren't what were in mind. It was just describing everywhere. Yeah. Another example, and anything more you want to add to that? Well, it, it, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, reminiscent of uh, the phenomenological language uh, that we find in other passages of Scripture, like from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name of the Lord will be praised, the Psalms says. Well, that doesn't mean that we, the uh, Bible is teaching geocentrism, that the sun revolves around the earth. It's just describing the phenomena of that. And it Some people be... will say, oh, well, these primitive people, they thought that the sun went around the earth. But if you're going to hold to that same standard, you're going to have to take this out on the weatherman uh, because every day they talk about sunrise and sunset. Well, shouldn't they just talk about earth rotation instead of using those well it's a convention we all understand exactly what it means that's exactly what the bible's doing there and it's also important to note the uh, type of literature that you're reading for example uh 
passages are quoted from the Psalms of all places to say, well, the earth has ends according to the Bible. In Psalm 67 and verse 7, it says, God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. And in Psalm 98 and verse 3, it says, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now, if that's assumed to be a description of the earth, clearly they should have picked a more historical source than a poetic one. Because if the genre of the literature is expressive, not descriptive, I have to justify my interpretation of the Psalms for this to be a description of the earth rather than an emphasis on God's love being shown yeah, yeah. everywhere yeah, exactly. <laughs> as far as you want to go. And, and it, it, another example of this is like uh, Psalm 75 and verse 3 that says, when the earth and all its people quake, is I who hold its pillars firm. A, a flat earther will say that, well, see, the earth has pillars uh, according to the Bible, and so it's flat and it sits on pillars. But that's not what is being talked about here. Uh, other passages uh, also refer to the earth's pillars, like for Samuel chapter 2, but it certainly shouldn't be taken literally uh, in the sense of woodenly. Uh, it should be taken literally in the sense of saying, oh, what am I dealing with here? Uh, I'm dealing with poetry. They are using a, an example of something we do understand, like the pillars that would be used to put up a house, to uh, teach us something about God's ways of dealing uh, with his people and uh, how God deals with uh, things here on earth. Basically, what God is saying is that uh, the world is God's construction and he guarantees its stability. That's all that's being said there. And we can go to other passages like in Daniel 4 or in the Gospel of Matthew where Satan, or in other passages as well, where Satan brings uh, Jesus to a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the earth in their glory and says, all these I'll give to you if you bow down and worship me. Now, it's inferred on the text, as well as in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, that all the nations could observe this great tree that was in Nebuchadnezzar's dream there's your first strike yeah but the point being made still stands they'd say well how could all nations see something if they're all in this spherical interaction and that of course is inferred on the bible not taken from it well i look at the passage very plainly and ask all the all the kingdoms of the world in their glory well i know one kingdom that was in their glory at this time the roman empire you could argue maybe on dates the Parthians were pretty high up there. You can maybe look over and see the Aztecs. But how high, and you and I have been to Israel, how high on a mountain would you have to go to see every kingdom? You can't. Right. So if the literal, or in this case the hyper-literal and inferred flat earth interpretation is nonsense, what should we do? Seek another sense. <laughs> So what else could we conclude? That Satan was showing Jesus a vision of all kingdoms at their zenith. Right. And that would just as much justify the text as the flat earther's interpretation. But the problem is what? I'm already assuming the conclusion. I'm just looking for evidence to prove what I want. I'm not looking at the text and saying, what did this just say? Before yeah. I put any equal signs down. So, and we can go on. We can talk about how the, um, the Hebrew word uh, rachia is uh, referring to something being stretched out flat, which is false. You can talk about that linguistically. We can talk about all of the controversy about uh, the firmament and how it's a dome-like shape covering a flat surface, which is, of course, false. Right. We can go all the live long day, but to speak in plain English here, the issue with a flat earth interpretation of the Bible is that you would not get a single bit of data 
from the text. Right. You have to take all of the data you've already committed to and read it into the text. If it's poetic, it's not descriptive. If it is descriptive, but you have to infer information in order to justify that interpretation, or if equal and valid interpretations in right. other literary devices, like the idioms we talked about, are just as valid, why don't you consider those? Because it's not an intellectual issue, it's an emotional one. So if you're concerned about whether or not we've been lied to, I'll be the first one to stand up with you in solidarity and say, yeah, we have. But that should give us a love for the truth, not an equal and opposite reaction to promote a second lie. Right. If you want more information on this, I would recommend resources like Answers in Genesis, where biblical creationists, by the way, they take the Bible a lot more seriously than most these days. Uh, articles have been written by Dr. Danny Faulkner. That's F-A-U. L-K-N-E-R. He's an astrophysicist. Who uh, yeah. obviously hasn't been bought off by NASA. Yeah. In fact, they fired him, but <laughs> let's make that point. If we're talking about this issue, we need to make sure that it's based on information, not reaction. And if you hold this position because you've been burned, hey, I'm sorry that happened to you. But make sure that you don't respond to one lie with another. Yeah, and conversely, there's some people who say, oh, no, the Bible teaches that the earth is spherical. And uh, they'll point to passage like Job 26 and verse 7 that says he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. Or Isaiah 40 and verse 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. These are not teaching specifically, although they allow for a spherical earth, they're not specifically teaching that. So some people say, well, why does the Bible teach us about uh, the fact that the earth is a sphere? Well, we got to understand what we're dealing with when we're dealing with the Bible. The Bible doesn't claim to be a book exclusively on cosmology, uh, how the universe uh, it, you know, exists and so on. Everything it says touching cosmology is true, but the point of the Bible wasn't to explain all of those things. It doesn't claim to be a book on geology either. But everything the Bible does have to say touching geological issues is, in fact, true. So, you know, when we look at, at a passage like this, we have to be careful not to oversell, in a sense, what the Bible says. Oh, yeah, the Bible, you know, even before uh, anyone went up on a rocket or, you know, uh, science has figured it out, uh, figured out that the earth uh, was spherical. We don't really see that specifically taught in the scripture. So we have to be careful uh, not in our zeal to oversell, in a sense, what the Bible says, making it say something positive in our our eyes that it doesn't affirm. Uh, we just have to let the Scripture speak and uh, realize that the main point of the Bible is to explain how we got here, who created the earth, how we can have a relationship with that Creator, why we don't have a relationship with that Creator, what God did about our separation from that Creator, how he entered into his own creation in the person of Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life, died on a cruel Roman cross, and rose from the dead in a moment of history, that whoever puts their faith and trust in him is going to have eternal life. That's a far more important issue, don't you think, than whether the earth is flat or spherical? Absolutely. Um, few questions from Nina. Uh, a hypothetical, why didn't God choose Israel? He could have come to America 2,000 years ago. Um, 
I love hypotheticals. I'm being sarcastic. Uh, when it comes to the reason why God chose Israel, we're given the reason in Deuteronomy chapter 7. If he had come to the greatest and latest nation in all the earth, it would have communicated the exact opposite point he was trying to communicate by choosing Israel. In Deuteronomy 7, he said, I did not choose you because you were the greatest of all nations, for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you and he would keep the promise he made to your ancestors. Right. No promise was made to the ancestors or founders of the Americas. And, of course, no uh, thing would have been proven as far as God being superior if he had chosen the greatest and most prosperous nation out there. So that would have been totally irrelevant. Um, if Jesus had come back during Noah's flood, would something have been different? Yeah, because in Hebrews chapter 1, it says, In the fullness of times, Christ came. So if we go off of our timetable rather than God's, that's our second mistake. But here's a question I think that's worth answering. Why did the law come before grace? The book of Galatians discusses that verbatim, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, well, essentially the law came to show us our desperate need for a Savior. Uh, it diagnosed our problem like no other. Now, again, there's different aspects of the law. The law was given as a uh, series of guidelines. Uh, for a theocratic nation, a nation which the Lord was God to be able to operate. It was given to uh, illustrate to them what it meant to worship God, how they could draw close to him in spite of their sinfulness, hence the sacrificial system. Uh, it was given to reveal to us how we should conduct ourselves as people in a way that uh, not only is going to draw us in a relationship with God, but is going to greatly enhance our chances of uh, finding happiness and fulfillment in this world. And all those things were fine as far as they went, but what couldn't the law do for us? It couldn't fix the problem. It only identified it. Yeah, you know, I, an illustration, I think, that, uh, that points out the place of the law in uh, the grand scheme of things is almost like going to the doctor and the doctor saying, well, um, you know, we think you have this potentially fatal disease. How about if we do a uh, MRI on you and find out if you've got that disease or not? So they put you in the MRI, they come back and they go, yep, you got a fatal disease, all right, the MRI shows it. Could you imagine what your response would be if the you said, well, what are we gonna do about it? Well, we could run you through the MRI again and see if it helps. No, the MRI can't help you with the disease. It can only show you you have the disease. Uh, the only way that we can overcome sin and death is by putting our faith and trust in Christ, who paid the price for our sins, removed them as far away from us as the East is for the West, and then comes into our hearts to give us a brand new nature so that uh, all the things we try to do externally by following written codes in the law uh, God then begins to give us the desire internally to do because we're believers in Christ. So that uh, that would be the distinction there. Yeah, and again, we encourage uh, Galatians and Ephesians both discuss this in excruciating detail. Galatians 3 through 4 as well as Ephesians 4 through 5 go into further detail. We'd encourage that for your own reading. And uh, Romans 6 through 7 as well talks about the, uh, the role of the law and <laughs> The Apostle Paul uh, gives us a, a breakdown about how his own MRI came back when he tried to take a look at his heart through the lens of the law. All right. Um, question as well on our website. Who wants to know, what is the best prayer to pray for our world leaders if there's one in the Bible? Be very careful with this mindset that, oh, if they prayed this in the Bible, therefore that's how I should say it. Jesus said directly in Matthew chapter 6 that you shouldn't pray like the heathen do, 
knowing for their many words or their yeah. repetitions or their quotes and incantations, even when he gave the famous, quote-unquote, Lord's Prayer, which he himself never had to pray because it includes forgive us our sins, he was making the point of emphasis in this manner pray. Now, how did he demonstrate a proper prayer attitude? It was first identifying a relationship, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, your kingdom come, so on and so forth. God was the focus because he's the audience. You're talking to him. Yeah. Give us this day our daily bread. Acknowledge your physical needs. Forgive us our sins, your spiritual needs, as we forgive those who sin against us. Call for greater holiness. Yeah. And lead us not into temptation, acknowledging that as the case, but deliver us from the evil one. And then concluding with the one you're still again talking to, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now, why did I go through that? I thought we were talking about world leaders. Well, understand that when you pray, you are talking to God. If my heart is for a world leader, I should talk to God about it the same way I would talk to you about it. Now, if there is a degree of respect that should be held when you're speaking to the creator of everything. Yeah. Yeah. But if you understand the relationship that's in place, Romans 8 gives us a good overview of this kind of, I guess, balanced and childlike attitude we can have. Uh, it's helped me to begin my prayers just to kind of get off that rote and formalism, you know, the the Lord mantra that we get into, oh Lord, just, I want to just, Lord, Lord just, yeah, I just, just you know, yeah. all those things. <laughs> yeah, It helps me break the habit by saying, Dad, not because I'm talking to him, but because I'm talking to a spiritual father. And if I can use that informal language that I learned with him, it helps me to talk in the same way as if God was actually listening, because he is. Whatever helps for you, take it or leave it. But the point being made is this. If you want to talk to God about world leaders, talk to him about world leaders. You don't have to say, okay, well, is there like a passage in Isaiah that I can quote so that God will listen to it more? No, God knows what he said, and also note he knows what you want to say. But if you take the time to talk to him about these things in your way, he's going to be more blessed by that, and you'll be more edified yeah. by that because you're That's actually right. talking to God. You're not just reading a Bible passage. That would be something we'd want to I guess promote caution about is saying, uh, oh, are there prayers in the Bible? Don't get locked into that trap. Yeah, uh, and, and if you do pray along with a prayer in the Bible, like the Lord's Prayer, just make sure that you're praying it with the meaning and looking at it as a pattern of prayer, not as some open sesame kind of thing. As far as praying for leaders in this world, there's uh, three passages, I think, that uh, we need to keep in mind. If, uh, in fact, that uh, we're, we're going to be right on in terms of our attitude towards world leaders, First uh, Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 says, I urge then, first of all, that prayers, petitions, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those who are in authority, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and holiness. First reason that we should pray is it's going to be to our benefit if we pray for these people. It's going to accrue to our own godliness and holiness. And we uh, notice as well, it says, this is good and pleases God our Savior. He wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, maybe there's some world leader or local leader that just really gets your goat and drives you crazy. Hey, uh, if nothing else, you can pray for them to get saved and learn to see things God's way. That way it takes us out of the bitterness game and puts us in a place where we are walking more in love uh, rather than putting down people and you know questioning their motives and so forth. 
Uh, also, a uh, very interesting passage in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 7, God told the Israelites in exile to pray for the welfare of Babylon. He said this, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So you pray for your leaders, you're praying for a blessing upon yourself. And finally, Romans chapter 13 and verse 1 says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, I, I love that because God's in control. And sometimes when I spend a little bit too much time on the interwebs and I get bombarded by all of uh, the crazy policies and sometimes flat-out God-rejecting uh, policies that are out there, uh, it, it seems like I'm watching one of those left-behind movies or something. And and there's part of me that grieves about this. You know, I've always been raised to be patriotic and love my country. And when I see us going in the wrong direction or abandoning uh, the Lord, uh, it, it does grieve my heart. And the problem with my grief is that my anger doesn't work the righteousness of God. And so I have to take a step back and I have to say, okay, Lord, you see what's going on here. I pray for these people. I pray you'd speak to their hearts. I pray, Father, that you would bring people across their path. They can share the gospel with them. I pray that if these things have to happen in order to fulfill uh, your prophetic plan and to right this world gone wrong and return our Lord Jesus to us, then, Father, I give you that because you know what you're doing. I ask you to take care of us uh, in the midst of all of this so that I'm not overwhelmed by fear, uh, but that I can trust you in the midst of all this. Boy, I do that, then my heart and my mind are focused back on the right things uh, you know, I, I just don't want to get to a point where I'm so reactive to all the crazy stuff that goes on that I, I learned to uh, deal with this world just like the people uh, that I'm concerned about uh, who don't know the Lord are dealing with it. I, I have to remember that God is there, that God cares, and that God has a plan. And the more I do that, the better off I am. All right. Uh, question, two questions, I suppose, from Yari. Uh, where two or three are gathered together, I am in the midst. What's the proper context of that statement? Yeah, well, what Jesus is speaking of there is uh, church discipline, isn't he? Yeah, and of course, restoration being the goal. If we're talking about establishing, obviously that's a quotation from the Old Testament regarding law and the accusations in court. But Jesus wasn't establishing a court system with the church. He was establishing a following, someone who would not only have the set of beliefs that he emphasized who he was and what he did to prove it, but also that they wouldn't be alone and that in this union they would be able to keep things in order yeah. the way God kept things in order in his nation. So note the common theme, the relevance of right. the quotation, and finally the source and the application. In the immediate passage, as you stated, it was regarding the restoration or condemnation of a brother who's in some sort of fault with you based on whether or not they receive correction. Yeah, and uh, whenever you're involved with correcting someone, especially spiritual things, you know, and people find out we do a Bible question and answer program, sometimes uh, I laugh and say, yeah, we, we talk about all those things your mom told you never to discuss in polite company. Why? Because you get involved with spiritual conversation. Man, I'll tell you, people get uh, madder in a wet hen uh, so fast to make your head spin. Everybody's got their conviction and so forth. So, you know, when Jesus laid out uh, in Matthew 18 
these steps of restoring somebody who's sinned against you. You go to them privately. Matthew eighteen fifteen says, if they don't, if they listen to you, you won your brother. You don't tell fifteen people about it. You go and keep it as limited as you can. Then you go and bring two or three witnesses that everything may be established in not just people that have seen exactly what the sin is, but hear out both sides of this and see the reaction that's involved with all of this and establish what the truth of the matter really is. If the person doesn't listen, then you take it to the church. If they don't listen to the church, you separate them from the church with the idea of restoration if they turn. Again, but as you can probably imagine, you get involved with that business, people get bent. People get really upset. And one of the questions that always comes up when someone is disciplined in a church discipline setting is, well, who gave you the right to do this? Well, that's where Jesus' statement, where two or more would gather in my name, I'll be there in the midst. In my name. Now, now understand, we are operating in Jesus' name when we do things Jesus' way. And uh, by disciplining people who are in unrepentant and open sin in the church, uh, people won't like that, but we don't really care in a sense because we're more concerned about how Jesus would look at this. We want to operate in his name. And he backs up this procedure by saying, when you do this, and that person says, yeah, says who? You can say, well, says Jesus. And he's right here in our midst, and he's hearing every word that you're saying. And they're like, oh, I, you know, I don't believe that. Well, believe me, God is not so subtle about revealing to people when they get off the path and correcting them and bringing them back. Sometimes uh, being taken to God's woodshed is less than pleasant. If you don't believe that's true, I highly recommend you read for, through 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where a guy in Corinth was taken to the woodshed and in no uncertain terms turned over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. So when we, we see something like this, first of all, the immediate context is the backup that we need spiritually to know that when we follow these procedures, when we speak the truth in love, and we're dealing with someone who needs that kind of correction, we got the Lord backing us up every step along the way. That's really important. Now, does that mean that that passage is not valid uh, in terms of saying, well, you know, when we gather together before the Lord, he's present with his people? Well, I can think of some other scriptures that are uh, far more uh, applicable to a general gathering of God's people. Uh, you know, first of all, we see in the book of Revelation that uh, in Revelation chapter 1, we are told that God holds the seven stars or the, the seven uh, pastors of the churches in his hand, that he walks among the lampstands, that Jesus knows our works. I would say that implies his presence, his presence with us. Uh, we're told in Psalm 139 that we can't get away from the presence of God. He's always with us. But as far as God's special presence with us, I think of Hebrews 13, 5, where God says, I will never leave you and never forsake you. So uh, when God's people gather together, he is, in fact, there in the midst, and uh, we can know that for sure. All right. And then as a follow-up, how do we avoid taking things out of context in Scripture? Well, I, I think you said something uh, earlier that uh, I was reading uh, the, some of the notes you put together for uh, our study in the book of Revelation. And uh, one of the things that I think uh, we can do to make sure that we aren't getting things out of context is uh, something as simple as asking ourselves those basic questions they teach you in journalism school about how to get to the bottom of 
a story. You ask some basic questions, who, what, where, when, and why. If we take a look at Scripture and we ask those questions, it's going to keep us from getting involved with uh, Scripture t- twisting. Uh, does the Bible warn us about that? Uh, yeah, when it comes to, for example, in Second Peter chapter 3, he discusses those who twist the Scriptures to their own destruction, but it's prefaced with people who have essentially become cynical, that they say, oh, things have uh, been the same from the very beginning, but this they willfully forget that the earth standing in water, of course, being flooded with only certain people being saved. He leads up to this example of false prophets, and basically the last eight books of the Bible are all dealing with this, because imagine that, liars are going to lie, figures are going to figure. But the point that was made in all of these is, first of all, and you can read this in Jude as well as in, I believe, 1 Peter, that or Second Peter as well, chapter 1, God will deal with them. Make sure you're not one of them. You avoid being one of them. Why? By acknowledging first what Peter made the preface of. Some things are difficult to understand. Yeah. You come to the Scripture yeah. with a sense of reverence and a sense of respect in realizing this is going to get above my pay grade at times. You bring people into your life who have spiritual and intellectual gifts who can help you with this, right. but you check out their responses. You don't just let them do the thinking for you. The second way to avoid getting things out of context, and again, it's important to have this in mind. I'm fallible. I want to be one step ahead of myself in this sense. What else can I do to avoid this? Well, secondly, don't get intimidated when you see the words Bible on the cover of the book. Because the Bible is not a book, it's a collection of 66 books all affirming and verifying one another. If we recognize that and treat it as such, then we might almost consider it a blessing because these are shorter than the books we're used to reading. But the point being made is this. When someone brings up a spiritual matter or discuss spiritual things, or like we'll talk about tonight, getting into symbolism. They're like, ooh, I can't take this like I would any other piece of literature because it's spiritual, it's symbolic. Why not? It's literally words on paper put in a particular order to convey some sort of meaning. If they make references to the past that have explanations in them, that might be an explanation. If it's a sign and it says so in the text, like Revelation chapter 12, for example, a sign isn't the destination. It points you to the destination. So right. what's the destination? Do I keep that in mind? John five thirty nine might be a hint. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have life. These are they which testify of me. Right. But that's your hermeneutical key. Great. Uh, interpretation of the Bible. Sorry to speak in pig Latin. The point being made is this. If I get intimidated and I treat the Bible as if it can't be treated like anything else, I'm going to get slippery because I'm putting on slippery shoes. I can't fall into the mindset of saying I should take this as anything else than words on paper, but I should regard the conclusions from those words based on their source, and that's also key. The third thing I think that's important when it comes to these things isn't just, again, asking the plain sense and the context, not just avoiding intimidation, but as you mentioned, Yari, uh, not pouring out gems from the storehouse of ignorance. If you don't know something, admit it and yeah. treat the text accordingly. And a real dangerous sign that we're drifting in this direction is uh, when you're in a Bible study and someone says the famous words, this is what this passage means to me. Now, if what you're saying by that is this passage has been meaningful in my life in terms of application, that's great. You know, share away. But if you're saying, yeah, this is my take on it. Uh, you know, I, I just think, uh, you know, that uh, this is what it means. Well, be very careful 
because I really don't care what a passage means to you, and you shouldn't really care what a passage means to me. What we should really care about is what was the author's intent in communicating this passage? What does this passage mean to God? And I think if you can go into a Bible study setting with that in place, it's going to serve you really well. Let us know if that helps you out, Yari. Again, people will continue to have their own agendas. The key is to not be one of them. People will continue to make mistakes. The key is to not be the ones who do. Hey, I got a great question for us here. I can't wait. From Holly. Uh, He says, what are your thoughts on the tonal change of the wrathful and just God in the Old Testament and the comfort of Jesus and our salvation in the New Testament. Some people say that there are two gods. The Old Testament God is uh, vengeful and wrathful and bloodthirsty. The New Testament God is simply a God of love. Okay. How will we respond to that? Okay, let's uh, read that wrathful and just God. This is the book of Hosea, chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And called, and out of Egypt I called my son. As they called him, so they went from him. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. And I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king because they refuse to repent. And the sword shall slash his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. How can I give up on you, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? Can I make you like Adma? Can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. Wow, I'm, I'm just shaking in my boots with all that wrath and vindication. Yeah, the now broken-heartedness of God, right? Yeah, and yeah, this and, description and, yeah. of him teaching a child to walk by, like, putting know, little it's, strands it's, it's and so, stuff and just it's, watching it's them. It's so intimate. And Psalm 103, you know, uh, I, I think of, of uh, uh, verse uh, 6, where it says, He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the children of Israel. Oh, Moses and the children of Israel, that's all about wrath. No, it says that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. <laughs> in other words, if you're reading it right, that's the God you meet in the Bible. Now, he is nobody's fool. He is a just God, but he is also compassionate and gracious. Now, what about the New Testament? Is it just all uh, kind of warm fuzzies and, you know, Jesus just uh, showing us grace and love. Well, let's go to the uh, gentle and uh, hippie Jesus holding a lamb on his shoulder and uh, not uh, harming a fly. This is the book of Revelation, chapter 19. Now I saw, and this is verse 11, heaven opened and behold a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. It goes on to give Old Testament references to explain who this is, but I think verse 13 is fairly plain. His name is called the Word of God, and he's also wearing a robe dipped in blood. 
The armies of heaven, armies, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. The significance of that was explained in Revelation chapter 1. And with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron, quoting Psalm 2. He himself treads the winepress and the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. That's a reference to Zechariah. And he has, and Isaiah as well. And he on on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to the birds, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, of captains, and of mighty men, flesh of horses and all those who sit on him, of all people, free and slaves, small and great. I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Anticlimactic to the peak, verse 20, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And the two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. How gentle. Yeah. Well, yeah, here's the bottom line. In the book of Hebrews, we were told Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no Old Testament, New Testament God. And, and really where a lot of that comes from is uh, evolutionary ideas uh, about how we got the Bible. That is, it has to be explained by naturalistic processes rather than supernatural intervention. And they'll say, well, you know, the Old Testament God was this primitive warlike uh, being. And then eventually as people progressed and, and grew in their intellectual capacity, then we have this advanced uh, New Testament God who is all loving and, and kind. No, we don't see any kind of difference because we're not talking about something that man could come up if he would and, uh, and uh, couldn't if he, if he should. So uh, what we're dealing with is God's revelation there. Uh, not some kind of evolutionary development, but a lot of people uh, tend to think that. So, yeah, that kind of conclusion is one that we only draw because we haven't read from either. So, make sure that we don't get caught up in that stigma. Hey, here's one I think we can get real quick as we're wrapping up here. Thirty seconds. Uh, regarding people with metal conditions, how are they going to be judged? Uh, um, we will be completely condemned before God, and uh, there's no hope for us. Yeah, no, it says I'm not serious, but. Uh, the the thing that we really come back to, and, and boy, I've been in some tough situations where people have passed away who've struggled with mental conditions. And uh, the, what we can really come back to is this. Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25 uh, really gives us a lot of comfort there. It says, Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Nobody is going to be excluded from heaven because of any kind of mental uh, capabilities or incapabilities they had. Uh, nobody is going to be in heaven because they didn't have any kind of uh, physical flaw. It's all by the grace of God. And he's more interested in us being in heaven than we are in heaven. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.